Welcome to a special episode of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Emmett Stinson. Emmett is a senior lecturer of literary cultures at the University of Tasmania, and his new book, Manane, is out now from Melbourne University Press. Welcome back to the show, Emmett. Thank you very much for having me on. Very pleased to be back on one of my most favorite literary podcasts. <laughs> it's so good to have you back because I realize we haven't spoken for uh, quite a long time because, mm. as you said before we started recording, we've both moved into state in the time since we've last spoke. So do you want to give us the update on your life? How's the family going over in beautiful Tasmania? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very good. I, I moved to Hobart uh, in March of 2022 from, from regional Victoria and really, uh, really enjoy it here for people who don't know Tasmania. It's a, it's a particularly beautiful part of Australia, very, very different landscapes from the mainland. And it's a lot, it's a lot colder as well. Um, beautiful place for, for hiking. You can, you know, the, the, there's water kind of everywhere. The whole city is sort of built around the water. So you get these beautiful, it's very mountainous You get these beautiful views of the, of the Derwent river and of the Harbor, all throughout the city and it's a it's a it's just it's a really stunning place to live it's also very easy to to get around by and large you don't have you know there's not much in the way of traffic you know um commute to work is like 10 15 minutes most days it's it's a it's a pretty easy place to live it has a lot of the advantages of a bigger place but um the conveniences of a smaller place so highly recommend Hobart it is the most beautiful capital city in Australia by such a long way. It's not even funny. I think I think it's I I do I do love parts of Sydney. I think are really stunning as well. But but Hobart's right up there for me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's amazing. I I'm desperate to get back there. So it's been a while, but I'd love to get back there. Well, I hope we'll have to catch up the next time you're down. I look forward to that. You're describing to me the uh, your children's school as well. Um, what's the view like from there? Oh yeah. It's all, all of these schools are all the public schools and, you know, they all have, they're all up on these hills. They have these views out over the Harbor that they're just, you know, kind of these million dollars stunning views. You, you know, it could all, you know, it's like, it's like, could be the Hollywood Hills or something in terms of the way, you know, the way it looks, it's just absolutely beautiful. And they're just, yeah, they're just, pub, just, it's just like, oh yeah, it's just a public school down the road. No big deal. So that's one of the advantages of being here is it really is just, it's just exceedingly beautiful. Um, almost, almost to the point where you can take it for granted, though. I will say people here do know how beautiful it is and, and don't take it for granted. I mean, the other thing, like the thing that is crazy about Hobart. So like where we live at the moment, we have, we have wallabies that live in the backyard, which is like a crazy thing to me because when I first moved to Australia from the U S 20 years ago, all my friends back home would be like, you know, Oh, do you have a, do you see kangaroos? And like, I didn't, people don't see kangaroos in Australia. That's not how it works. And then it's like, oh, actually, no, they live in my backyard now. And the other <laughs> thing I was, I was trying to explain to some family at home, because family at home couldn't believe that they didn't understand. One of my cousins, I was talking to him and he was like, wait, how can there be wallabies in your backyard? I don't understand. It was like, he was like, do you live, is it in the country? And I was like, no, it's not, it's not in the, the country. It's just, you know, it's very near the city. And he was like, how can there be wallabies? And I was trying to explain, like, if you're at my house and you walked a kilometer down the road, you'd hit woods wilderness that just goes for 250 kilometers until you hit the west coast of Tasmania and there's literally nothing in there they're mm -hmm. completely uninhabited no one lives there and I think that's the other thing that's stunning about this as a as a place so much of it is actually preserved as genuine wilderness that 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 isn't inhabited and that's it's it's just something that's kind of a lot of Australia is like that but but it's it tends not to be sort of green and mm. you know wilderness in that in that way yeah, it's, it's a stunning place and it's so nice that they do protect all that wilderness and hopefully yes. they continue to do that because hopefully otherwise, so. yeah, yes. wouldn't be very good. What is the, like culturally, I know Tasmania in, from mainland Australia's perspective, uh, at least in the past, Tasmania has been seen as a bit of a backwater in, in some ways, especially culturally with uh, the Museum of New and Old Art, uh, Mona down there. I know that there's been definitely a shift in the culture. There's a lot of arts focus now. There's a lot of writers who've moved there. But how have you seen like that cultural scene in Tasmania? I, look, I think the story of Hobart is this, or that you know, is is a similar story to a lot of places in regional Australia. And I've lived mostly in regional Australia for the last decade, living in in Newcastle and New South Wales, and then Ballarat, and then here I did one year in Sydney as well, but mostly mostly regionally. 
because house prices are so expensive in Australia and because the capital cities are prohibitive, um, if you don't, if you if you don't have property, you don't have family that can kind of help you out to buy property. Mm-hmm. I think as more and more people have moved to regional areas, they've just quickly become much more cosmopolitan than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, you know, Hobart is a place where there is a lot of um so, you know, Tasmania, famously, it's it's considered at the moment to be sort of one of the powerhouses of Australian literature. We have these fantastic authors here like Robbie Arnott and Adam Austin um, and Ben Walter and, you know, Amanda Lowry and, you know, um, all, all of these kind of very, you know, very, um, you know, um, highly regarded um, writers here who are fantastic authors. But it also has the highest illiteracy rate in Australia um, in it. You know, you know, it's 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 often quoted around forty percent the illiterate the functional illiteracy rate, which is mm-hmm. you know it's terrifying. So it's a it's a place that has a lot of um, it has a lot of inequality. That's it's something that's something that's very familiar to me coming from the U.S. and from places that I grew up in. But I think it is a it's it's a challenging thing about the place that you have some very different things. And I think there are people who live. I think you can, you know I think people who are well off live very well in Tasmania, but there are a lot of people whose lives are are full of very serious. And real challenges. So I think it's a it's a beautiful you know the thing that everyone can experience is that it is quite a, a beautiful place. But I think it can be a, a you know a, people have very different experiences of it is what I would say. Mm-hmm. the The Museum of Old New Art is absolutely incredible to have um, nearby. It's a fantastic place. I've really enjoyed getting to spend uh, time there, and they have fantastic cultural events there. And there's a lot of other cultural stuff happening in the city. We have a local bookshop called Fuller's, which has just mm-hmm. fantastic. Uh, events has really great authors coming through. We have Island Magazine, which is our local literary journal, who do fantastic events and are putting things on all the time. And like I said, we have you know so many great authors who you know they actually turn up to events and and um, do things and you know that that's and they're and they're very generous with their time. I I did an in conversation event with Robbie Arnett about six weeks or eight weeks ago. Um, uh, at the University of Tasmania about his most recent novel, Limberlost, which was a fantastic novel. And he was so generous with his time, um, incredibly thoughtful with his questions. He does, he do, comes and does a lecture each year for our um, first year subject. And he's just, he's just really generous with his time, really keen to give back to the community. So there's that, you know, people really believe in contributing back to um, the literary community here. And that's, it's, it's really genuine and it's really fantastic. Amazing. In, in the academic kind of side of things in Hobart, obviously being at the university there, being in the literature department, have you found that it's different to being in other cities in Australia? Um, look, I think one of the big differences is is we are, you know, Tasmania is an island of 500,000 people. So it's, you know, quite a small population to a, to an, you know, you know, an island that's quite, quite large, you know, if you, it's, it's not that much smaller um, mm. than you know than Great Britain, for mm. for example. But um, but you know we have only five hundred thousand people, and they're distributed primarily in two large two largish cities mm. um, in Hobart and Launceston. But I think one thing that's different is we're the only university on the island um, that services this place. So you know you have a slightly different relationship right off the bat. You know if the if local radio. So when Cormac McCarthy um, passed away, which is very sad because he was a fantastic, fantastic writer, though he, you know, he was he lived a long and, and productive life. Um, but you know, they call us to see if we if we've got you know something to say about Cormac McCarthy, which I mm-hmm. I want. I was very happy to do that. Very happy to talk about him. Yeah. But but I think that's one of the ways that's different is we are expected to have a sort of a relationship for good reason and validly so a relationship with the local community. That's actually one of the things I really like about the university. I like that kind of public engagement. I like um, working with working with people out, you know, beyond the, the walls of the university. So I, I find that great. And luckily my colleagues are like that too. Um, and it's a really, it's a really, you know, I found it to be a really friendly um, and welcoming place to place to work. But I think that's, that's kind of the main difference. You know, here people, people refer, they refer to the rest of Australia as the mainland and they mm. talk about, being on island when they're here a lot mm-hmm. um and you know the the fact of being on an island it's it it's not just a mental thing it is it does present real logistical challenges in all kinds of ways like if you want to buy appliances for example there can be a you know months of, of wait for them to deliver new appliances things like that mm-hmm. so there are kind of shortages here or, or there's less access to some things um you know so it's just it's just a different experience for all those reasons Interesting. All right. Well, 
we should move from one small regional place in Australia to another. So let's talk about Gerald Manane. Your book on him, Manane, is out now. It's a wonderful series of essays on his life, his writing, and his critical reception in Australia and around the world. But to start off, do you want to take us four hours west of Melbourne to the small town of Garoke and tell us about that town and also about the man himself? So, yeah, so look, I and I, I should say off the bat, and I like to say this because I think it's important to say, I've I've really um, met Gerald Manane really only the one time when I went to do this interview. He was incredibly friendly with me, like incredibly generous with his time. I'm really thankful that he was so, you know, kind of open to, to, to talking with me. Um, but I should also say that I'm not, I'm not friends with him. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't sort of, you know, text me to say, he's texted me a few times about practical things, but I don't, I don't pretend to know him well, and I don't claim to know him well. And so I think that's, you know, that's one thing I kind of want to say off, off the mm-hmm. bat. So to me, getting to visit him, it really was this kind of incredible opportunity. Um, but I'm interested in his books and I'm, I was sort of interested to meet him because he was the person who wrote the books. And I know that mm-hmm. sounds maybe obvious, but but I do want to make that point. Like I didn't, I never wanted to be friends with him as an author. I'm interested in him because he's written the great books and he was really, really interesting to talk to really funny, really. And I think that comes through in the interview, just kind of what a, a fascinating person he is to talk to. Mm-hmm. And I just felt really lucky, um, to, to be there. Um, but this was, yeah, this was just, this was about, uh, I think September or October of 2019. So a few mm-hmm. months before COVID, um, I was living at that time in, in Ballarat, which is just a few hours down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't wasn't thankfully too far to drive. It, would ha- it was the second time I'd been to Groke. The first time I went to Groke was during the kind of semi-infamous Gerald Renane conference at the Groke Golf Club that was actually covered <laughs> in the Paris Review and um, a lot of other places. And I, the first time I drove to that from Sydney, I took some small roads. And on one road, I actually had to stop because uh, about 30 cows had broken out of a paddock and we're on the two lane um it wasn't even a two lane highway it was a one lane road that has kind of the mud on each side and I had to very carefully weave around the cows on my way to to Garoke so that gives mm-hmm. you a kind of a sense of you know um how remote it is it, it is it is about 35 minutes outside the town of Horsham which is a you know is a regional town of some size um but it's a very small place Garoke it's not a place that you would you would um stop normally um I did ask Murnane why people would move to Garoke and he jokingly said he was joking I should say but he jokingly said whatever is the opposite of winning the lottery that was his reason <laughs> for to Garoke. so he, he was he was he was joking in the way that people joke about places that they love right mm-hmm. um but um yeah I I you know it's a it's a really small place it's got kind of basically it's got a you know a, a sort of a a very small IGA grocery store kind of slash convenience store. It's got one, you know, one or two other very small things in town. And that's about, that's about it. And I met him in the men's shed just across mm-hmm. from that and interviewed him um, there, you know, as, 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 you know, for this, for this book. And, and we, and we, we talked and like I said, he was incredibly generous. He almost has the kind of um, it's a, he's, he's a very organized person. He's described himself and other pieces of writing saying that many people have called him the most organized person they've ever met. Mm. And he definitely did before I showed up, he kind of told me, okay, we'll do an interview and then I'll, then I'll take you back to the house and you can see my room. And then I'll, you know, we had this kind of itinerary um, for the day. And so, you know, we, we did an interview and then we broke for lunch and then he came back and he took me to in, into the very famous um, room that he lives in, which is quite a spare place. It's, it is characters in his novels often build these kind of, sort of secular monks chambers mm-hmm. um, and it's hard not to think of that when you see his room you you walk in he has his he has some bookcases he has his very famous filing cabinets and we walked in there was a poster of all the winners of the melbourne cup and he immediately turned around and he said see and he started reciting all the winners in order and he stopped after about 40 or 50 he was like you get the point i know them all mm-hmm. um but he was very proud that he knew all the winners of this this very famous horse race in the melbourne cup um he had his his marbles in two jars on his desk. The famous marbles that are the subject of the no- his first novel, Tamarisk Row, mm-hmm. the marbles that he imagines as racing horses, um, and 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 this you know imaginary community of Tamarisk Row that is all about racing that he that this young boy plays with his marbles. So you see you see the got to see the marbles and um, 
he uh, he sleeps on a swag. He keeps it, which is like a kind of a for for non Australian listeners, just kind of a glorified sleeping bag, basically. Um, with a, it's basically a sleeping bag with kind of a a thin mattress under it and some weatherproof protection on it. He pulls that down off of the off of his bookcases each night to to sleep on. Um, he had his violin. He brews his own beer, and you know doesn't have a TV, doesn't have anything like that. Um, you know, and that's just you know, it's, that's kind of, that's how he's chosen to, to live. Um, and, you know, I should say, look, he, he owns a house, which he, which is, which is in the Northern suburbs of Melbourne that he's written about in the book. So it's not like he's living in, he lives in, in a room adjoining the place of one of his sons. So he's, mm. he's chosen to live here. It is elected. It's not out of, um, penury or madness or anything like that. It's just, mm. you know, it's just how he is elected to, to live. Um, and it's you know it is it is very it is very unusual, but he seems very happy uh, mm. with his arrangements. So yeah. In the book, you kind of go into I guess some of the I, I don't know if the, the reasons that he moves there, but he obviously he lives with his son there. Um, his wife died quite a while back, and they were living in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And he chose to to move back to Garoke. but uh, like for for listeners who don't understand this side of Victoria, like this is like a extremely flat, extremely yeah boring well let's say boring I don't know like it, it's it's not a landscape that's filled with uh with filled with a lot of things it is a very flat landscape this is a town of like 300 people I think you, you might you might you might, you might even call it mostly level countryside with with mm. with green trees in the distance but um to use one of Renee's favorite mm. um, phrases but yeah it's very flat it's incredibly hot and dry um it's not quite like you know the visions of the outback that you get and things like crocodile dundee it is it's greener than that but it is it is it is you know in the summer incredibly hot dusty there there are some beautiful um you know hills around and things like that but it's mm-hmm. th- there is very little um it is not an un, it is not an obviously beautiful landscape it's not a landscape mm-hmm. that most most people would step into and say oh yes this is this is stunning it's quite a it's quite a uh, quite a spare place and yeah um so so it is it is unusual in that regard as well for sure mm. yeah well in you like in the book you go go into that monastic lifestyle yes. uh and like you know living with this you know sleeping on this swag using his phone extremely sparingly like you said you know he'll check it at the end of the day kind of thing for text messages and you know uh get people to print him out articles about his work and things like that so when you interviewed him, so and you said he was very friendly, but like, how was that process? Like, how did you get the interview? Like, how did you arrange to to go there and see him? So look, uh, you know, I I should say with this in the, in this case, um, his uh, publisher is um, uh, Professor Arthur Indic, mm. yeah, um, at Giramondo is is has published most of his recent novels, um, and I, um, you know, I have I have. Um, known Ivor a bit over the years. I don't claim to know him, you know, well, um, but he's someone that I look up to very much uh, just for the kind of amazing publishing work that he does in Australia. Um, and I emailed him asking if I could get in contact with Gerald to, to see if he would be willing to do this interview. So that was the, that was the, um, that was the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's even more convoluted than that because Ivor wouldn't put me in touch with them. There was this kind of other roundabout way that I had to then sort of get it. I had to kind of get in contact, you know, send him basically a letter of request in a very specific way that he then sort of responded to. Um, so it was even, it was even more complicated than, than, than that. There were no, like, you know, what wasn't like I had to show up at the park at midnight and pick up some strange package, but you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know it was like a little, a little bit convoluted, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, because of course, Murnane has every right to to his his privacy, um, but um, but yeah. So he he agreed to it, but wanted to set a very specific date, which was fine. Mm-hmm. I was obviously happy to accommodate that. Um, the thing that I do talk about in the book is that so I so look, I have not um, I've not I've not you know I don't know Murnane well. I've I want and one of the ways that I actually got into his work is I worked in Melbourne with. Um, Jenny Lee, who's a former editor of Mianjin, and she was the head of the publishing program at the University of Melbourne, which is where my I got my first academic job. She was one of my mentors. And one of the ways I got into Renee's work, I read it 
much earlier. When I first arrived in Australia around 2004, I read The Plains and, and I'd been reading some other books, but I was talking to Jenny about it and I was saying, you know, I'm not sure if I get it. And she said, no, he's he's the great Australian writer. He's a genius. Mm -hmm. You've got to keep reading him. She was really pushing me to do it. And she had worked with him when she was the editor of Manage and he had been the fiction editor there. So she recommended him very highly um, and actually had had tried a couple of times to get me to to meet him, which I had failed to do um, for for other reasons. And I actually wrote an article about how I'd never I'd kind of become obsessed with his work, but I was convinced I would never meet him. So I was a little mm -hmm. There was a certain maybe hesitancy, um, you know, the, the kind of never meet your heroes sort of sort mm. of thing. But when I went to the very first Grow Up conference, I, I gave a paper in the golf course and Renane was there. He was watching us all give papers and he was sitting behind the bar reading the newspaper and they announced the title of my paper and I get up, got up to talk and he actually walked out of the room in kind of the first 20 seconds that I was talking to sit outside and read the newspaper, which mm. is totally fine. Um, I had no problem with that. He didn't know me personally, so it was nothing, nothing personal. And he did say kind of later, oh yeah, I just it just didn't sound like my kind of thing, mm -hmm. basically. But as you know, as a critic of Murnane, you can't, you know, he doesn't like literary critics. That's all the way through his writing. I had that mm -hmm. initial experience. The New York Times article about him actually makes fun of the title of my paper as well. So that's that's um, you know, that that was kind of funny also. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then you know, when I went to meet him, the first thing he said is he said, okay, we're going to do this interview, but I have a question for you before we get started. And he said, you know, kind of this, he said, my question is, look, I, as an author, I know what I do, what I'm doing. I, mm. I have intentions. I enact them in my writing. I know what I'm doing. So given that I know what I'm doing, what do you think you're doing when you're writing a book about me? <laughs> His sort of argument is like, I I already know what what it is I'm doing. So what possible purpose could literary criticism um, serve? And we had a, a a very polite but robust conversation about that. You know, and I sort of said, well, that's fine and that's good, and you should know what you're doing. And I'm kind of interested in your intentions, but also kind of not interested in your intentions. And I'm kind of developing my own understanding of these books that would sit alongside your your own views of what they do and i'm not i'm not saying that my views are like more right or anything but it's okay that they're kind of sitting in parallel and i don't i don't think they have to um cross and he sort of accept i don't think i won him over to the side of literary criticism i didn't think there was any possibility of that but i think i convinced him enough that he was sort of happy to happy to proceed um, I'm sure he would think my interpretations of his books are absolutely wrong. So, um, so that's, that's fine. I've got, I've got, I've really got no issue with that. Um, but so it is, it is kind of a funny thing to write a book about him because I know that, um, yeah, he's, he's very skeptical of literary criticism in general. And he says, and you know, he said elsewhere in his writing that he actually, um, he actually decided to enter the priesthood to avoid doing an English degree at the university of Melbourne. That was his, <laughs> That's his that's his argument that he, he as someone who'd won all the English prizes in school, everyone expected him to go and do that, but he didn't want to do that because he thought he he didn't understand literary criticism and he thought it would kind of kill his love of literature and it was sort of everything that he didn't like about um books. So, you know, here I am as someone who has a PhD from the University of Melbourne, you know, wanting to write a book on him, probably a probably a, you know, um not not maybe his ideal reader to use his own favorite phrase. Right. Did you send him a copy of the book now that's out? I haven't sent him a copy of the book. Um, I would be happy to, you know, if he if he wants one. He hasn't he hasn't requested one. Um, <laughs> I I probably should do actually now that now that you you mentioned it. But um, but it's also you know I think I think with something like this, I think this a book like this isn't written for the author. You know, look, mm. I, I I I absolutely love Gerald Manane's. Um, fiction. I, I hope that comes through in the book, mm. but I am really speaking, trying to speak to um, readers who've read a little bit of Murnane or maybe confused or want to know a little bit more or people who know a lot about Murnane and want mm. to know a little bit more, or even people who've never read him, but have kind of heard about him and are saying, well, what, what's the deal with this? How, how would I get into it? It, it is meant to be, um, it's meant to be sort of a, a a window into his work to use a you know use a, a metaphor that's very Renee appropriate, mm. um, and you know and that's and that's what I was trying to do. So it's 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 weird it's weird thinking of the author being there. It's a thing that happens more and more. I was at a JM um, Kutsi uh, conference in 2014, um, and um, I I gave a paper on him with his partner sitting in the in the front row, but other people 
who I'm friends with, were giving the paper with him about his work, with him sitting in the front row. And they mm-hmm. found it quite intimidating <laughs> to uh, to have, you know, have the Nobel Prize winning author sitting in the front row as you're talking about what their work means. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's one of the appeals of this book for me, because I grew up in Australia. Um, I went to a pretty decent literature program at university, and he's not someone who came up at all. Like, we had read through a lot of his contemporaries. We'd read through a lot of the people who, you know, came before him. You know, we'd read through people like uh, Sunderlock like Elliott and, you know, Randolph Stowe and Patrick White and all of those people like, you know, um, Elizabeth Jolly, um, David Maloof, like yeah. all of these people who are basically within, you know, that certain range of age group that he would be in. And he never, ever came up. And I did not find out about him until much later on. And in Australia, I think that, my experience anyway, and I'm pretty sure most people would feel this, that we heard about him from overseas. We heard about him like via people raving about his work from overseas after, probably after the planes came out. Um, And that was reissued here, I think, by text. um, And people finally, I think, started reading it. Um, But that was, you know, well into the 2000s, I think, before Australians really got a grip on him. But I want to ask you about your thoughts on on the fact that he has had this relative obscurity, but particularly in Australia, and I think that your book now, I think, hopefully opens the door for a lot more people to come and read his books. Look, yeah, it's it's um it's it's a, there's been one other short book in Australia on his earlier books, and my mm. my book, which deals primarily with his last four novels, is mm. meant in some way as a kind of a spiritual companion or response to that book. Mm. Um, in, in certain respects, they're very different books. They come to different um, conclusions. That first book was written by um, Imre Salazinski, and it's a fantastic book on on Renee. I, re- I highly recommend that mm-hmm. um, for the early books. Um, it's it's great. Um, but um, yeah, it's an interesting one. So I think the first thing about you know Renee to say is is that he uh, you know his his works are not obviously ac- accessible. So I recently I just wrote a chapter in the most recent. Um, uh, Cambridge um, history of the Australian novel, comparing David Malouf and Gerald Renane. And David Malouf is um, like, he has been, he's had his books more prescribed for secondary curricula than probably any author in Australia. Um, he's widely taught at the university level as well. And you can see why he writes these short little novellas. They're beautifully written sentence to sentence. They're very well structured formally. They have all these kind of modernist techniques in them. They're very, like, they're very, you read a David Maloof novel and you're aware of how well made it is, like what a great craftsperson he is. Like you really note that. And, and he's definitely taking things from like, you know, all the great modernist writers. He's taking these techniques, but they also all have plots where things happen and they're kind of very dramatic and they're often very sort of sad and they tackle big themes you know they tackle multiculturalism they tackle sexuality mm. they tackle um you know you know kind of you know myths about you know australia and world war one and you know fly away peter and stuff like that so they're kind of these these they're books that are very slight but they're very well made and tackle these big kind of metaphors and you can and they're great for high school students because you can say here's this short book you can read it pretty quickly no problem um and it has all these layers to it that you can that you can look at and it also tackles these big national themes perfect for high school mm-hmm. and then you get Gerald Renane and it's like you, you can take the planes which would be the you know the book that would seem the most easy to um put on a list like this and it's like what's it about it's like oh it's about it it's kind of a science fiction except nothing happens and it's Funny, but I'll have to explain all the jokes to you because you won't understand it. And it's about a mm-hmm. filmmaker who goes into the desert to get a patron to make a film, but he never makes his film, and nothing really happens in the book. You know, mm-hmm. just it just doesn't work. I did assign um, one Gerald Renee novel at the at the tertiary level, um, which was A Million Windows, just because mm-hmm. I love that book so much. And I had a, a student survey at the end of the semester that just said one of the student comments is these anonymous surveys that students get to fill out, which are mostly really nice. You know, mostly they're nice. And this student was being funny, I think as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know who it was obviously, but they just wrote Gerald Renane. And then in all caps with a ton of O's, they just wrote boring, <laughs> just kind of going over three lines. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge to teach Renane. I have taught his short story, the mice failed to arrive mm-hmm. um, several times. And that works much better. That story seems to click with, with people. Um, more 
Um, but I think he's very hard to teach at the tertiary level. I think it's it's possible, but hard. Um, I think at the secondary level, it would be impossible to teach him. So he just, he doesn't lend himself to that kind of institutional teaching mm. um, in the way that a lot of authors do. And he's never written kind of his, you know, Thomas Pynchon wouldn't seem to lend himself to that stuff, except The Crying of Lot 49 is a great novel to teach. And yeah. it's a great short novel. And Renane doesn't really have anything like that. that sort of readily lends itself to, um, you know, to being, uh, to being, a text adoption in that way. So that's that's one challenge with him. The other thing is his early books were, um, he's always had people who loved his work. Like I have an early edition of one of his books and there was a clipping from 1986. It was a newspaper clipping that had a little drawing with him, drawing of Renan and it was calling him a national treasure. You know, So he's always had these really strong admirers who've loved his books. Um, but I think that's been the exception rather than mm. the, rather than the rule. Um, and I, I think people have been suspicious of him for various reasons, which I kind of tackle, try to tackle in the book. I think one thing, and it's a big thing, is that Australian literature is, has always been seen as having a, a kind of a um, a default preference for realism. Mm. Um, Patrick White famously called it the um, the uh, called it dun dun colored realism was his mm. famous um description of uh you know he was journalistic writing that was his argument about the australian novel um but i think it's i think it's also not true because we do have writers like patrick white who is anything but that mm -hmm. i think david maloof who we just mentioned isn't is would be in any nation would be seen as an incredibly fine writer of enormous sensitivity writers mm -hmm. like elizabeth jolly or helen garner are actually very stylized very complex writers in a various in various ways and you can go back and and you can take a writer like christina stead who i think is actually like the i think that's she's sort of the great australian novelist um you know or um eleanor dark or now a writer like alexis Wright. so we actually do have a much more complex tradition that i think is that that you know that history doesn't quite acknowledge but there's a lot of truth to the fact that you know the australian novel is is a realist novel often or a kind of a realist novel so yeah one of the interesting, I guess, perspectives you bring up in this book is something Ramona Covell said um, about his writing, I believe, and she calls his writing autistic, basically, which I don't think mm. went down terribly well with him. But that that comment, in a way, resonated with me a little bit. But do you want to talk about that? And and I guess that that idea of, of writing and obsession in his books or I'm not sure what like that yeah. the whole idea of like that yeah. kind look, of thing. Look, I mean, my 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 objection to that descriptor is I think, you know, I think first of all, I think, you know, to, to use autistic in a pejorative way is is mm. not acceptable. So I think that's I think that's wrong. And I think you know, everyone would kind of accept now that that's not an, an appropriate way to to use that term. So I object, I object to that bit. I think the second thing is that Renane has been very clear that he doesn't identify as autistic. That's, mm. you know, and the, the point that I guess I want to make about that, that kind of claim. Um, and, you know, I think I think for a lot of people who who are readers of his work and are, you know, not neurotypical, there are there are strange identifications with Renane's work for those mm. of us who are in that in that position that we that we find um in his fiction but you know um you can find identifications everywhere you know it's a it's a it's a kind of the anthropomorphic principle it's like is there is there a face on mars or you know <laughs> are, are we just programmed to see faces in in, yeah. in things since they appear sometimes in in nature to me the crucial thing with Renane's work is that it is it is really carefully made it is really finely wrought and it's he's trying to produce very specific effects and one of the things that I noticed that I think his poetry is quite different in terms of its tone and its style. I don't think it's, I don't think his poetry, the sample that I've read of it in his one published book of poetry under his own name, um, he apparently has published a book under a pseudonym that no one has found yet, a book mm -hmm. of poetry. Um, but his poetry is very different. So I think we need to accept, first of all, that what we see in his books is a very intentional effect that he's deploying. It's not mm -hmm. like so another thing I don't like about that categorization is it's kind of saying that his books are like naive or outsider art, or he doesn't know what he's doing. And that's, that's mm -hmm. a lot of artists get painted with that over the years. You know, Daniel Johnston in music has complained for years that people said that about him. And he said, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. And I, yeah. I was chasing a very specific effect. And actually mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm not, I'm not an outsider artist. I know, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm an avant-garde writer, artist and I know what I'm doing. Okay. So, so I think the same thing is true of Renee. So I think it kind of sells that short. So I just, I just don't like it. However, um, I think there is something about his work that is really fascinating in the way that it brings you into a world. It is a world that is shot through with fetishes and they are like, they are fetishes. I mean that kind of in a, in a very literal way. Um, and we see that again with, you know, marbles and racehorses mm -hmm. and stained glass windows and fear of the ocean and multi um, mostly level countryside with grassy trees in the distance and, you know, um, perfect grammatical sentences. You can't write anything but a grammatical sentence. There are all these kind of mm -hmm. fetishes that are obsessions that sort of structure the work. Um, and we're also brought into this world that is so full of detail and meaning. It's so vivid. Mm -hmm. um, and we're so, our faces are pressed so close to the kind of the glass that it can feel actually quite claustrophobic. And mm -hmm. again, I think this is, to me, this is what's fascinating about Renee's work is I think it's trying to play with all of this stuff in various ironic ways. Um, and so it can produce really unusual effects, but I think they're intended, they're intended effects, you know, mm -hmm. it's because he's a skilled writer, um, that we experience those effects, which are, which are his intention. Um, they're not sort of things that just kind of happen by accident because of a, a set of, a set of dispositions. And also, of course, I mean, the other thing that needs to be said in all of this is that, you know, um, you know, I, I don't want to reify a, a, a neurological way of being in the world, which differs enormously from person to person. And I don't mm. think captured in one kind of definitive experience. So I think, yeah. I think there's a, a kind of a, you know, yeah, a, a reification of, uh, you know, of that, that I, that I'm certainly not comfortable with. So, yeah. So mm. I, you know, I understand why that's been a description, but I don't, I don't think it's the right description. Here. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, in terms of his writing and style and thematics, what do you find so appealing about him? And also, does he have some Australian contemporaries or protégés you think we should be reading? Yeah, well, look, it's interesting. He's he's actually, he's he has a ton of, uh, he's got a ton of authors um, who um, who have, uh, you know, who, who, who he taught in various ways. And I've worked with several of them at Deakin. Mm -hmm. um, Maria Tackelander has written a fantastic essay about being his student um and what that experience was like um and many of his students will speak you know enormously highly of him um my you know other other people have noted that he could be very um you know i i think you know i my i think that he is someone who probably doesn't um you know when he disagrees with something is very clear about that right and that's mm. that that may have been challenging for some people who were students but i i don't know all the students of his that i've spoken to have you know have spoken very highly of him as a as a teacher um so yeah so he 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 did because he was a creative writing teacher influence a lot of other writers no one i think who writes like him um exactly I think I think we're seeing now um, some some younger novelists who are taking elements of um, Renane. So I'm thinking of a writer like Sean Prescott, who I think is influenced by Renane in certain ways. Um, there's that novel Wood Green that Giramondo published a few years ago by Sean Rabin, I think, um, which has got some very Renanian qualities. I think you know again quite explicitly. Um, we know that he has fans. Um, Wayne McCauley, I know, has has corresponded with him for many years. A fantastic Australian writer, um, and um, you know, bears some of that influence. I think Jen Craig, I know, has spoken on this this very podcast about mm -hmm. Renee's work and you know, kind of what it means to means to her. So, so, I think a lot of people are reading him, but I also think he's a writer that's so unusual that you wouldn't want to. You wouldn't want to do what he does because it would be too it'd be too indebted to that. It would be very hard. It would be very hard to write a Renanian kind of book. And I think if you did it, people would sort of go, ah, yeah, you know, it's, it's like pastiche. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like trying to write like Kafka or something. It's mm. better just not to do it. Actually, it's better to take that influence and turn it in a different direction. Mm. But yeah, um, but 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 yeah, I I think you know there are some other things that are more complex. You know about his influence in Australia. I think. You know, at, at the time, part of it is, I think, actually, um, it goes back to kind of rival factions in 
at the University of Melbourne, there were there were you know a group of people who were involved with um, the journal Scripsy, who were all kind of including Peter Craven, who were sort of champions of Renane's work and really published him and liked him. And there were other people who went on to be very influential academics that didn't like the Scripsy people and didn't like Renane and say you know, that that I think is kind of a weird old material division that's affected his reception to some degree. Mm-hmm. I also think you know look there have been questions about his politics, which I think are conservative. Um, he Renan calls himself apolitical, but I think it's pretty clear that that there are some conservative elements to his work. That's not been a problem for other Australian writers. You know, Les Murray, the the poet. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone would say very confidently, "Oh, he's a great poet." Um, and and I think like Murnane, his you know Les Murray's writing, like Murnane's writing, when it's at its best, it doesn't really have a political valence, and I don't think it lends itself to kind of easy you know political allegory. Um, so to me, it's not you know really good writers. I think always undermine their kind of explicit politics to to varying degrees, whatever those politics might be, um, because that's what complex writing does. It doesn't leave you in a settled place it might ask mm. some questions but it but it but those questions kind of become endless um and i think Renane's best work does that um and there have also been a lot of criticisms over the years of his portrayal of women in particular which i i deal with in, in the conclusion and i do think that is i do think that is a complex um i think that's a complex complaint and a not a not invalid one at all um, but I do think it's I do think it's fairly complex. It's really it's really hard to do justice to in this kind of context. But I think I think you know um, I think people tend to make assertions about the way that women are portrayed in in Renane in very definitive ways when it's a it's a slightly more complex story than, mm. than often gets talked about. Interesting. Okay, as I discussed with you before we started recording. I feel like I'm a bit of a Manane agnostic. I've generally enjoyed what I've read over the years, but I've never felt compelled to be like a Manane completist. But if I was going to ask you to choose me a book to convert me, which one would it be and why? It's look, it's a really it's a it's a tough one. And I I sort of say in the book that it took me about five novels before mm. I kind of finally went, oh, oh yeah, I think I really like Gerald Renane. And I, you mm. know, you can question if it was a kind of a, a kind of a literary Stockholm syndrome mm. um, to some, to some degree, but, it, but, but it's not. And I, and I think part of the difficulty with Renane is that his stories to me, to me, a writer, you know, if we're thinking of writers that I might compare him to is someone like Thomas Bernhard who keeps returning mm. to the same themes throughout mm. his work. But each time he returns to a kind of a well-known trope, it, it, enlarges that and changes it so that Mm. when you encounter it you know for the third time in a book where a character can't decide to live in the city or the country you know you view it in a different way than in the first book and so Renane is like that that as you keep reading the books and as you keep seeing these repetitions they kind of change in ways that are there are all these callbacks that kind of enrich um, the connections between the works I think that's one challenge Mm. um but there is no easy point of entry to his work. There really isn't. It's you just kind of have to dive in and 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 go with it. I always recommend the short story when the mice failed to arrive, which mm. I mentioned earlier, in which a lot it's the first story in the in the collected stories. Mm. In uh, and I and I think it's it's a story that kind of does everything that Renane's work does in miniature, and gives a sense of of what his writing can do. What I like about his work and the, the you know, I talk about this in the book. I say that his is I, I compare him to um I compare his work to a group of writers in the US that Hugh Kenner wrote about, which were the US modernists like William Carlos Williams, who are very cosmopolitan writers, but famously William Carlos Williams writes an epic poem about Patterson, New Jersey, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to Patterson, New Jersey, <laughs> it's not a particularly epic city in, yeah. in an obvious way. Um and Williams is kind of point in doing Doing that was to say that actually, you know, the epic is around us at all moments. We can kind of find it at hand. And so Hugh Kenner called these uh, writers a homemade avant-garde. And that resonated for me with Murnane, who, you know, his kind of, you know, er story, his kind of, you know, um, you know, most basic story is about a kid in a backyard in Bendigo playing mm-hmm. with marbles and pretending they're racehorses. You know, it's a it's a very banal, very simple story. I think a lot of writers might be inclined to kind of make 
fun of this or make it kitschy or make it silly, but Renee takes it deadly seriously. It's it's absolutely full of significance and meaning, and it's sort of radiant with shimmering possibility. This this you know this childhood, there was always something you know full of meaning and significance just just over the horizon, just over in the neighbor's yard. You could see it through a pane of colored glass, or you could hear it in a specific sound. Um, and it's it's there's a kind of attentiveness to the world and and its imminent uh, capacity for you know for real meaning um, that I that I think is really unlike almost anything um, mm -hmm. in contemporary Australian fiction. I do also think, and you know, coming back to that kind of political thing, if we're looking at sort of post-war novelists, I mean, the way that he writes about sort of working class people. Um, in Australia in the post-war period takes these people extremely seriously, takes the culture very seriously. Like I say, it's not ironized, it's not mm. kitschy, it's not made fun of. Um, these are, you know, these characters have a real kind of inherent, you know, dignity to them and their lives are really, really meaningful. Um, and I think that's something that's quite interesting as well and sort of pushes against this kind of you know, this tendency to sort of say that Renane is in some ways um, conservative or that he, you know, one of the claims against him has been that he glorifies the settled colonial settlement of Australia, which I don't think is quite true because all mm. the colonial mansions are kind of actually deeply ironic and mm. in various ways in the books. And I think actually there's also the story where he talks about these other sorts of characters that are, um, yeah, that are very different. You know, they're more like, they're more like George Johnston, my brother, Jack, than they mm. are monkey grip you know kind yeah. of characters they're not these sort of um cosmopolitan inner suburban university educated yeah. people they're very different australians and I, I always like to joke as well that as far as i know he's one of the only australian novelists to feature northland shopping center uh, <laughs> in, the, in the north of melbourne um, which is not a very literary uh place in an obvious sense so yeah yes um on that i want to ask you about late menane versus early menane because I found that reading his early novels like Tamarisk Row and um, Life on the Clouds, I feel like they're much lighter and they're much more obliquely funny. Like they're definitely, they're overtly kind of funny. And, but I think the later Monet stuff, I think has more of a serious seriousness to it. I think the jokes are kind of veiled by other things. And there's a lot more of that kind of hermetic focus. And, you know, we have more landscape, I think, in, in those later books. Yeah. Do you want to describe, and obviously you focus here on, on more of the later work, but do you want to describe the difference between those periods? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, look, it's a, it's a really interesting one. And I think, I think one of the things that complicates it is the later books. So Renane starts publishing again in 2009 with Barley Patch, and he's very mm -hmm. open in saying that it was actually because I, they did a conference on his work at the University of Newcastle in the early mm -hmm. 2000s. And Ivor Indyk really said to him, you know, encouraged him to publish, to write more books and basically said, I'll publish whatever you send me. And so the late books, we get just what Renane wrote. Like, and I actually, mm -hmm. I, I talk about this in the book, but I spoke to an editor on one of his books who said that um, she had never worked on a book that had so few changes. She had, she reckons she actioned one change mm -hmm. across the entire manuscript between what was sent in and what was published. Um, so the later books are his vision in their totality. We know that the earlier books, so Tamarisk Row was basically cut in half. Mm -hmm. Lifetime and Clouds was Lifetime and Clouds was meant to be published in two volumes, and the second volume just never oh, wow. came up. Um, and so that's been republished now by text as a season mm -hmm. on earth, which is, in my view, mm -hmm. a much better book than mm -hmm. the than the the half a book that we had. Um, and so we, you know. And we know there were many other manuscripts for that period. So we kind of never even really got the early Renane. There was never even, there was never even much of a publishing track record of that. Mm -hmm. um, other people have pointed out those early books are written in the third person. And then pe people tend to see kind of, you know, th then there's sort of a second phase, which is kind of from the plains onward through the, through the other works. And then he takes this 14 years off writing. He quits writing in 1995. He announces that he quit writing um, in writing a story about his trip to Tasmania, which is the only time he's left mainland Australia. Mm. It wasn't very clear that that was what he was doing. Um, you know, and then he kind of quits writing and then is brought back to writing by Ivor Indic. It's actually more complicated than that because I, as I pointed out 
for a writer who claims to have quit writing, he seemed to keep publishing things <laughs> and he seemed to have kept writing things. So, so I think for him, it was that he stopped intentionally writing for books, but he didn't really stop writing. Um, but, um, um, and we know he's still filling his archives now. So, um, so he still hasn't quit writing, but he may have quit writing books that will be intended to be published as books. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I think one of the different, Differences is just that material difference. The late books are all books that are fully his total intention. Mm -hmm. My argument is that in those late books, he's almost trying to restore an order to his career that didn't exist. The books are an attempt to, the late novels are an attempt to be kind of summative, mm -hmm. um, to cap his career and to respond to his earlier works. And you can see that his very last novel, Border Districts, opens with almost the exact same line as The Plains opens. It's very mm -hmm. clearly a response to um, The Plains in some way. And the final images in the book are even counterpoised. The Plains ends with this image of intense darkness and blackness, and Border Districts ends with this um, whiteness, um, this stained kind of whiteness that's you know almost the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think he is playing a complex game trying to sum up his career. Um, so I think they're very different in that regard. I do think Tamarisk Row is not a bad place to start with Murnane because that contains the seed that all the other books sort of respond to in, mm. in various ways. But I think the thing that complicates that as well is I think if you go back and read Landscape with Landscape, which is the book that follows the plains, or mm. you read Inland, which follows that, and then he his two short story collections that follow that, those books are all really much more like the late works than they are like the early works. So even, even this kind of nice, it would, it would have been nice for my book if I could just say, oh, the late works are totally different. They're nothing like the early works. But I don't, I don't think even that's true. Um, I think he's a very he's a very strange writer who became this kind of very convoluted late stylist very early in his publishing career, which, mm. which is just odd in its own right. Well, he's 83 now. Um, his last book out was letter, uh, Last Letter to a Reader. And like within that book, like obviously he's giving people the idea that he has retired, like you were saying before. Yep. But do you think that there will be more published works that we'll see? I, I have no I have no idea. I mean, the thing that's hilarious about Last Letter for uh, a Reader, I have I have I have joked with the uh with Shannon Burns, who's writing a biography of Renane that um that Murnane, when he found out that it, like me and Shannon and other people were writing about his books, he quickly mm. wanted to become the, fir the first person to write a, a book about all of Gerald Murnane's books. And so mm. Last Letter Reader has a chapter on each of his books, including mm. the last chapter is about Last Letter to a Reader. So it's mm. kind of, his, you know, very funny Murnanean gesture, but it's, that's, that's a fantastic book. I have, I have no idea. He keeps writing last books and then publishing another one, but it, it does seem like it does seem like he's done. It's been a while since Border Districts. We know that he's got unpublished stuff in his um, in his archives. Mm. We know that there are earlier versions of novels in there. I'm sure that there will be more material that will come out of that at at some point. But it it doesn't seem, you know. Look, I would never say never. I don't. Again, I'm not. I'm not friends with Gerald Manet, and I don't know if if he were mm. writing another novel, he definitely wouldn't be telling me. I I have no idea. Um, but it does seem like he's done um, based on what he said. But We'll see, you know. As, a, as obviously a highly organized person that he is, I assume that he would have something in mind about his literary editor for, you know, when he does finally pass. But do you think he's got something like that lined up? Uh, well, look, as far as I know, Shannon Burns is one of the only people to have really quite extensive access to his archives. I know there are some other people that have been in there, but I believe I believe Shannon is, is the only person who's really done that. Um, I have no idea... Um, who his literary editor will be. And I think it'll be a fascinating thing because I think when when we do finally have access to that material, you know, I think um, a lot of it is, I think, quite intensely personal in mm -hmm. various ways. And I, you know, I, I guess I would say I don't envy his biographer because I think there'll be an enormous amount of material there. And I think, you know, um, he has documented his life in kind of quite, um, quite detailed ways. And I think that would be... Um, complex material mm -hmm. to wade through for anyone's life if you had access to that much detail about about a person's life i think it would be quite strange so i'm i'm very thankful not to be Renane's um biographer mm -hmm. but that will be an interesting task for someone who is who is yeah not me mm -hmm. do you think that i don't know this is my theory anyway um, it's a working theory but i think that 
a lot of people who read books, they like to look for the author like yeah. within the books. And I think Manane's like given us hints about, you know, the things he likes and other things, but he's clearly not an author who's, who's using a lot of biographical detail. Do you think that's something that affects kind of how people receive him? Look, I mean, I, I, so I, you know, I make the argument in, in the book that I think I, you know, he says very explicitly his books aren't autobiographical. Mm. I think they can only be read as autobiographical fiction, mm. kind of in the way that like Proust is. I think that, you know, mm. that I think is the model or, or Joyce, you know, like not autobiographical in the sense of they are works of fiction, but they are drawing very heavily on the mm. author's li- lives and experience and persona in all kinds of ways. And it's, it's a complex, you know, kind of ironic modernist game. Um, but I do think that matters. Um, and I think all the books are written from the perspective of characters who are very like Gerald Renane, even if mm. they're not Gerald Renane. So I think he is playing that game. And I think we all, you know, we all, people like, you know, stories about kind of weird reclusive authors, right? Mm. Whether it's Thomas Pynchon or, you know, Archimboldi in um, 2666, the Bologna novel, Mm. you know, or, you know, I'm obsessed with kind of, you know, pseudonymous authors like, you know, Evan, Evan Dara, Elena Ferrante, right? You know, um, all of these, all these sort of different writers who we don't quite know um, who they are. They're, they're fascinating. So I think, Murnane is playing a game around authorship that a lot of writers have played for a very long time. We see it now with a lot of autofictional work as well. Um, they they are having fun with their personas, and I think he's I think he you know he does that in his work, and it's absolutely mm-hmm. part of the thing that people are drawn to about him. I do also think of we know that Murnane was a Bor is a Borges fan, mm-hmm. and I also think of the short Borges story Borges and I. I, I don't know if you've read mm-hmm. that ever. Yeah. Where, yeah, where you know Borges is kind of saying, "Oh, I've developed all these mannerisms, and um, you know now people conflate the real me with this persona <laughs> developed as an author." And it ends with this final sentence saying, "I don't know which of us is writing this right now." Mm-hmm. So it completely just you know makes it even more ambiguous. And I think I think a lot of what Renane is doing is exactly that. He keeps creating these avatars of himself that just blur fiction and reality um even more complexly you know they're just more involuted than ever um and and which i think is great and hilarious yeah that's very cool all right i think i know the answer to this question but i want to ask you anyway but do you think he'll win a nobel at any time i i don't think he will um alas um (laughs) my understanding is that he had a back her on the committee for many years but that she has passed away that's my understanding um through you know third-hand sources um so yeah so it's seen you know i look i think he should i think he'd be a great nobel prize winner um but but it doesn't seem like it's it's likely unfortunately though i know he does have a you know a big following in sweden so yeah and lots of phd theses theses that have been written on his work there um Mm. so it would be interesting to see him getting on a plane and going over to Sweden. To I, I think there's a zero percent chance <laughs> of that happening. I, I, don't, I don't. I don't think even the Nobel Committee could get him uh, over there. So yeah, exactly. They'll have to do the ceremony in Garuk. Yes, they will. That's a golf <laughs> club. The only the only place for it. <laughs> All right. Before I wrap it up with you, I do want to ask you. Um, because I know you have a great list of books that you love to read and that you're looking forward to. Do you want to tell us any highlights of your recent reading or things you've got sure. on the table? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I do. I've got, I've got a few things. So, um, yeah, a book that look I've, I've written on recently, and I know your listeners will will already be very familiar, but um, Jen Craig's novel Wall is mm. is my probably my favorite book that I've read this year. It's, um, it's just absolutely fantastic. She's. Uh, an incredibly talented and smart and funny um, Australian writer um, who has developed some very notable, you know, fans among authors in the in the U.S. and I and I hope that her books do um, get the international reputation they deserve because mm. they're just they're just funny and rich and dense. So I've enjoyed that enormously. Otherwise, I've been reading some uh, um, some older things. I've I was given. Um, very kindly via someone that I, uh, via a, a mutual on book Twitter, an early uh, paperback copy of, of Joseph McElroy's Lookout, oh, wow. which is- I've never seen that cover. That looks yeah, amazing. Yeah, vir- virtually unobtainable these days, but yeah. I've been reading that and enjoying that um, very much. Almost almost finished 
It's a it's a novel about a film that goes missing. But yeah. the atmosphere, it does remind me of um of a lot of 1970s kind of paranoid, you know, conspiracy films mm. of that same sort of vibe, but in novel form. And so I've been enjoying reading that um a lot. I've also been reading kind of from a similar era very slowly, Gil Orlov uh, Gil Orlovitz's novel Milk mm. Bottle H. Um, which is a weird experimental novel about a working class kid in Philadelphia uh, in the post-war period. It's really dense and modernist and the character is often quite unpleasant, but um, it's really funny actually as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I, I love, I love that. On a lighter note, I am reading at the moment and enjoying very much um, Domenico Starnone's novel, um, The House on Via Gometto. Mm. Um, which is an interesting book because Starnone has for years been tied to Ferrante. Yeah, because people thought ways. she was her, didn't they? Um, yeah, so his his wife, Anita Raja, is the person who was kind of doxxed as getting the payments for being Ferrante, but um, linguistic analyses of... So corpus linguistics, um, there's a thing called the Burroughs Delta. It was actually created by a linguist named Burroughs at the University of Newcastle. And it's if you get a corpus and you look at the frequency that words are used across works and you actually measure the distance, that's the delta okay. uh, between them, you, you chart it. But it's, it's very good if you have corpuses, let's say you have five, let's say you've got all the books written by five different authors, and then you've got another text that you don't know who was written by. The Burroughs Delta, which is about word frequency, is very good at telling you which of those authors it's most likely to be. Mm. They've basically done stylometric analysis like that, and the, the Starnone corpus and the Ferrante corpus match very, very closely. I would say there's a near certainty that some author, whoever that is, is right is involved in the writing of both of those novels. Oh, interesting. But but you know who it is, I'll leave that for for others to to speculate. Certainly mm -hmm. the simplest answer would be to say it was Starnone. I've, I've been teaching Ferrante for years. And I remember when the first time I heard it was this guy, Domenico Starnone. I was like, that's ridiculous. There's no way a man is writing these books. Mm -hmm. I don't know if a man is writing these books because it's, you know, it's a more complicated thing. But um, but yeah, the the stylometry around that is fascinating. And certainly this book is engaging, as all his books do, with the Ferrante novels in really interesting ways, referring to key moments, characters, um. And as someone who likes Murnane and likes those kind of callbacks and references and loves a mm. loves a mysterious author, I, I enjoy that stuff very much. So I've been enjoying that um, enormously. I have also been reading very slowly um, Miguel de Palol's The Garden of Seven Twilights, which mm. Dolky Archive put out. That's a massive, massive sort of um, novel um, told by many different speakers and it actually has all these different levels of story that it keeps mm -hmm. jumping in and out of and that's that's been very fun um to read this year and the other weird book that i've been enjoying recently a totally strange book um is this novel about not novel it's a it's a book of criticism it's dedicated to paul metcalf yeah uh, moby dick mm. called hunting captain ahab and the premise of the book is that we've all been unfair to Captain Ahab, who actually, you know, wasn't this kind of monomaniacal crazy person, but had a had a real kind of, you know, very valid mission. And it's all it's all about the politics of Melville and what Ahab uh, represents. And it's it's trying to sort of, yeah, acquit Ahab. So it's a just it's it's a totally um, crazy argument, which I love. And it, mm -hmm. and it pursues it in this incredibly monomaniacal Ahab like way that's really enjoyable and really funny and self-referential. So I've been enjoying that a lot, too. Brilliant. Okay, cool. After, now that this book is out, are you, like, do you go into, are you writing more stuff? Like, do you plan to have another book out at some point or? I mean, at, yeah, at, at some point, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the next book project, yeah. uh, the next book project is for me. I haven't, haven't decided that this, this has only been out for a month. So I'm going mm -hmm. to allow myself. I, I know that there are some writers who always have a next book plan or they mm -hmm. plan, they start writing, the next book and the last book. I'm very envious of those people who can who can do that that way. I um, you know, uh what what is um uh Lawrence Stern and Tristram Shandy says um uh that the way that he writes a novel is that he he uh, starts with the first sentence and trusts to God for the second. That's mm -hmm. how I think I am as as well. So yeah, no, I I look I do on on an academic note, I have for years had um 
a sort of a thing germinating that I've been working on a bit about the way that the, the kind of literal way that difficult literature is published mm-hmm. at a time that seems quite inhospitable um, to it. You know, we live we live in a moment where you know we have so much uh, very obviously commercial culture on Netflix in you know commercial Hollywood movies that come mm-hmm. out that are just completely unwatchable um and you know um you know everything seems to have trended this way and yet we still get these very complex kind of difficult novels coming out we have people read them and people love them and they talk about them and so i'm interested in the way that this you know this kind of um difficult difficult fiction has managed to persist in a time that seems quite inhospitable to it and has actually been mm. found new new readers and we can see it in books like you know if you look at something like duck's newberry port you know the, yeah. the way that that novel was embraced to and was shortlisted for the booker and found fans around the world um suggests that actually maybe there is a there is a kind of a more complex story there than what we often acknowledge and i think your podcast is a is a great example of the fact that we've got lots of people who are still really passionate about forms of literature that aren't aren't obviously commercial you know mm. yes well I should let you go, but congratulations on this book because it does exactly that. I think it it makes Monet and somebody who I I need to re-explore. I need to go back and reassess, you know, my uh my readings of what I've read and and go through and read some more because this was just fascinating to read for me and it really has opened some my eyes, especially to you know some of his background and some of his works and and just the way I think that maybe I should go back to reading him. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a fascinating piece. I think that the cultural aspects on Australia, especially in how we read is um, so interesting to me. Um, So yeah, congratulations again. And I just loved reading it. Thank you. It's been been a pleasure to chat about it. Before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can get in touch with you online and where we can go and get the brilliant Monane from Melbourne University Press? Sure thing. You can you can find me on what uh, used to be called Twitter and is now known as X. I do have an account on there, sometimes tweeting about Murnane related things. The book itself is published by Melbourne University Press. You can buy it from their website if you're in Australia. It is also available on the Evil Empire that is Amazon <laughs> and at a variety of excellent independent booksellers across Australia, which is, of course, the very best place to buy books always. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Emmett. And I, it's a, such a shame it's been so long, but I love chatting and let's do it again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks once again to Emmett Stinson. You can get the book Monane from Melbourne University Publishing. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.